All right, so I grew up in the church. So I grew up in the church, grew up going to church. I actually grew up in two churches, fun fact, because my parents got saved at different times. I went to different churches. And so I heard all kinds of Christian teachings growing up, and I had all kinds of Christian misconceptions growing up. And one of those misconceptions was this. I thought about this exact scenario a few times. I thought, hey, what if I'm out walking, and a bus is about to hit me, and right before the bus hits me, I cuss, which back then I was sure was a sin, okay? And so I'm a kid, I'm going, and I cuss right before the bus hits me, and then I die, and I never had a chance to say, God, please forgive me for cussing. I thought, if I didn't get that chance to ask God to forgive me for my sins, that maybe I would end up in hell. Okay, so this was something I thought. This was a real scenario that kind of worked through in my brain. I heard different teachings about hell and forgiveness and, and confession of sin, and that's kind of where it landed for me as a kid. I would kind of think through this scenario a lot. It didn't help that the Bible teachers and adults in my life who I posed this scenario to, and I said, so would I go to hell? And they're like, I don't know about, I'm, I mean, maybe. <laughs> that didn't help things as a kid. Like, part of me was like, I think you're wrong, but part of me was like, maybe they're, I don't know, maybe I just got to not cuss before a bus hits me. Like, I, so what had happened was some bad teaching had crept into my life where I was convinced that I had to perfectly confess my sin every single time I, I sinned in order to not go to hell. Now, as I got older, I realized that was wrong, right? As I got older, as I had better Bible teachers around me, as I read the Bible for myself more, I realized it's not my confession of sin that saves me. It's Jesus' rescue and the cross and the resurrection that saved me. That's what saves me. Jesus has reached out. He's grabbed me. He's taken a hold of me. He has saved me. Sure, confession of sin is really important, and it's part of the Christian life, confession to God and confession to each other of our sins. But confessing perfectly isn't what keeps you out of hell. And I had to learn that over the years with better Bible teachers and better readings of the Bible myself. And so why do I bring that up? I bring that up is because the verses that we are in today, there are all sorts of crazy and bad teachings around them. We're talking through these verses. We read the verses. I saw how encouraged you guys were as we read those two verses on the screen during Scripture reading. We're, we're in this part of Colossians where Paul is going to begin to talk to these households about how to live out the Christian faith. And this week we're talking about wives and husbands. And there's that word there about wives submitting themselves to their husbands. That's hard for us to hear for a variety of reasons. And I think one of those reasons is there's all sorts of sorts of wonky, crazy, weird, non-biblical teaching out there about what this verse means. And I, I just want to say that here right now is I hope I don't do that today. <laughs> I hope I don't. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not perfect. I could, but I hope I don't. I hope I don't uh, teach this in a bad way. I hope that I give us some clarity on what these verses mean and what Christian marriage is according to the New Testament as a whole. And so that's, that's my hope today. And I think it's also helpful for us to know with these two verses that we're going to be going through in Colossians, there have been tomes and tomes and books and books and pages and pages written on especially what that submit word means. And it's important to point that out because very... Uh, with, with verses like this, we can very quickly go, I know it, right? Or my pastor knows it, right? When there's maybe a bit of debate in the Christian world around verses like that. And that's just good for us to know, to have a humble posture when it comes to verses like that instead of a heavy-handed posture. Does that make sense? So I'm going to say the things that I think these verses mean, and we're going to walk through it. I might be wrong. I, I hope I'm not. But I, what I hope at the end of the day is we have more of Jesus and we have more of his love, and I don't do damage with my words. Many have done damage with their words over this verse. Many have, have taught things that have caused harmful applications of this verse to happen. That's just true. That happens with all sorts of verses in the Bible. I hope that we don't do that today. I hope that we have a, a better vision for what marriage is. And I'll say this too. If you're single in here, 
This message is for you too. One reason it's for you is you might get married one day. I don't know if you're like, yeah, I'm going to get married. You might get married one day, and so this message is for you. But also, this message is for you because a lot of what we're going to be talking about with these principles of, of Christian marriage are things that, that we apply to the Christian community as a whole, that we apply to how we love one another. They're principles for all of us, okay? And so um, also if it helps Paul, who wrote this, he was single, and so, um, I don't know, maybe that helps. <laughs> so, uh, so here's what we're going to do today. Here's what we're going to do today. We're going to uh, do a few things. The first thing that we're going to do is we're going to read these verses. And then the second thing that we're going to do is I want to give you just a, a couple bits of background information on these verses to help us understand the Greco-Roman world in which these verses were written in and to, okay? So I'll give you a couple bits of information. And then there's three things about Christian marriage that I want us to walk away here with, and really three things about Paul's teachings on Christian marriage that I want us to walk away with today, okay? One of those things is that Love, mutual submission to one another, and submission to Jesus is at the center of the Christian life. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing I want us to walk away with is our marriages need to make Jesus and his word beautiful. All right? And the third thing that I want us to walk away with is there are some creational goods to find from God, from his word, and to live out in marriage. Okay, so those are the three things. That's what we're going to go through um, together. So let me take a drink, and then we'll hop into Colossians. All right, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, if you have your Bibles. The words will be on... Sorry, I'm like out of breath after taking that drink of water. Um, it was like I was swimming. Um, the words will be on the screen. If you don't know the Bible very well, Colossians is a letter that a couple church leaders, and maybe more, but Paul and Timothy wrote to this new church in Colossae, and it's a letter just saying, here's what it means to live as if Jesus is Lord. Here is how Jesus is Lord in all these different ways. So Paul is getting to the household today, and so we'll see how he puts feet to that. Um, verse 18 says this, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Okay, let's uh, stop there. So some background information that we need to understand these verses better. Uh, the first thing is this, uh, that we need to know about the Greco-Roman world, is the family home or the family unit lived very differently than the family home or unit today. The, the average household today lives very differently than how the household lived in the Greco-Roman world in which Paul was writing in and to, okay? They, they function much more, not in individual nuclear households, but they, they function much more uh, almost kind of like a compound or a villa, all centered around and all connected to uh, something called a potter familias, or the oldest living male in that particular family. And what would happen is you'd actually have multiple nuclear families living together in a compound or villa-like building, okay? You can go and look at some of them. Israel did it this way. The Romans did it this way. The Greeks did it this way. Now, some, you're going to find some, obviously, exceptions to the rule. But this, for the most part, was how people lived. It would be a home that kind of centered around a courtyard with multiple rooms, with different marriages happening, and it would, and it would be all, everybody would be there because they were connected in some way to this oldest living male in the house. And this was just how society worked. It, it worked this way so well that for the Romans, to, to live life this way was a value. It was a value to the Romans to live life this way because I think they saw how it kind of kept order and did some good things and all this kind of stuff. And even it was kind of in their, ingrained to, into their bones that living this way had helped them to survive throughout different times in history, right? Like people started living this way in order to protect themselves from other groups of people trying to attack them. And so um, this is how the Greco-Roman world worked not nuclear families, but really multiple families in one household. And that's just helpful for the next couple of weeks as we go through some of these different things that, that Paul says to that sort of a household, okay? Um, the second bit of background information that's just almost necessary for us to know is that the Roman Empire 
which is what Colossae is part of. They're under the Roman Empire. They live within the uh, Roman Empire. They're part of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had this obsession with status and order. They had this obsession with status and order. You can find many Greek or Roman philosophers who give their own version of household codes. That probably even came out before Paul's list here of household codes, as it's sometimes called. And you can find that, they, they, that theirs sounds even vaguely familiar to Paul's, although we'll talk in a bit about how uh, vastly different they were. But... Uh, the, the Greco-Roman world was obsessed with order, status, power. I know that doesn't make sense to us because uh, we're just obsessed with power, but not order or status in this country, okay? And so, but in their world, they were really obsessed with, with things being ordered, with, with what people's status were, who had more dignity than the next person, okay? And so those bits of background information of the Greco-Roman world are very vital to us understanding what Paul is trying to teach us in the entire New Testament about Christian marriage, okay? So now I want to talk about those three things that I want us to walk away with, okay? And the first of those three things is this. I'll repeat it again. Love. So these are the, these are the things I want us to walk away with, with what, how Paul teaches about Christian marriage throughout the New Testament, okay? Love, mutual submission to one another, and submission to Jesus are at the center of the Christian life. Those things are at the center of the Christian life. I really think you could find a handful of other things and say this is at the center of the Christian life. But love for sure is at the, I think, the very center. I think it's Jesus, and we know that God is love. So love is at the center of the Christian life. Mutual submission to one another and submission to Jesus, okay? So why that's important? It's important for us to know is because these a lot of times, essentially, we read these verses and we forget all, everything Paul taught before. Like we go, oh, there's a context where a husband does not need to listen anymore to all of these other commands that Paul just gave. And Paul gives throughout other letters. Right? Like Paul just spent all this time in Colossians trying to make it known that love is so crucial Right in uh, Colossians 2, verse 2, I believe it is, Paul says that the body of believers, you guys need to remember that you're joined together in love. Or as the ESV puts it, knit together in love. We are connected by love. The fabric that sews us as the church together is love. Last week, we saw that Paul was telling the church how to live with one another. And he says, put on patience, put on forgiveness, put on gentleness, put on kindness. He says, all kinds, put on compassion. And then what he says at the end of that little list, he goes, above all of that, put on love. Put on love. That's Colossians 3.11, if you're wondering, or 3.14, actually, if you're wondering. We are to put on love more than anything else. So when we come to these verses and we think all of a sudden there's a context where we don't have to listen to Paul's commands anymore, we're not reading the Bible right. We're not. And some of you go, of course not, Anthony. No, I, I've met people that read these verses that way. We have to realize that above all else, we are called to put on love. Husbands are to put on love. Wives are to put on love. Everybody in the household is to put on love. Everyone in the family of God is to put on love for one another. I love how Paul David Tripp defines love. This won't be on the screen, but I've, uh, we've talked about it before. But he says this, Love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand repayment or that the person is deserving. I'm going to read that again. Love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand repayment or that the person is deserving. That's the sort of love that we put on as Christians. And that sort of love is at the center of the Christian community. We are all together, hopefully, equally putting on that sort of love for one another. Self-sacrifice for the good good of another that does not demand repayment or that the person is deserving. That's what we put on. So the second that you as a husband or a wife 
or a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister are not putting on love and attempting to live out the Christian life or Christian marriage or Christian sonship or Christian daughtership or whatever it is, you are not living out the Christian vision for your life. You're not living out what Jesus is leading you into. He is leading us into love. He's leading us to be a people that puts on love. All right? Not only is love at the center of the Christian life, but so is mutuality or mutual submission to one another, which I'll I'll use that word mutuality to say that. Mutual submission to one another. Mutuality, the idea of mutuality is pretty simple. No one's better than one another in the Christian family. And I mean God's family. All of us. Not just the household. No one is better than one another. Everyone is equal in God's family. No one has a higher value than someone else in God's family. Husband or wife, you are equal in God's eyes. We are called to serve one another in love. God has leveled the playing field with the cross and the resurrection. Not, not actually, I don't even know if he's leveled the playing field. He's brought everybody up to the same dignity and value, and worth because of the cross and the resurrection. And so, uh, I know some of you might, I hope you're not having a hard time with that, but if you are, just remember in Colossians 3, 11, when Paul's talking about all these different ways that we are to live as Christians, he reminds them this, that they were neither Greek nor Jew, that they're neither circumcision or uncircumcision, that they're not a barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, that they they are in Christ, and Christ is in them, and Christ is in all. Paul's saying that to say, we are all one in Christ. Paul says something similar in Galatians. He says there's neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. You're all one in Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that because the Roman obsession with status was saying, no, slaves are here, free people are here, elite society is here, husbands are here. That's what Roman society was saying. And so Paul, in at least two of his letters, wants to make clear that's not what God's kingdom looks like. Everyone has the same dignity, value, and worth. And because of that, there is a mutuality for the Christian life. There is a mutual submission to one another that everybody in the the church, in the body of believers, is called to. If you don't believe me, you you can flip to Ephesians 5.21. It's not on the screen, but as Paul gives a very similar, although more extensive, like household code to the church in Ephesus, he says in verse 521 of of Ephesians, Christians submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is really important. Another reason why this is really important is because sometimes we get to these marriage verses and all of a sudden we think that everything that Paul said about the equal dignity and value and worth of everyone in God's kingdom, we kind of throw it out the window. Or when Paul's calling us, hey, when he's saying, to all of the Christians, submit to one another in love, we often think because the next verses talk about wives submitting and husbands not submitting, we think husbands don't ever have to submit. And that's just silly. You're, you're not going to find very many instances or any instances really where these commands to all of God's people, all of a sudden, like Paul's like, hey, but there is a loophole. There's a loophole if you're a husband, like you don't have to. Like, Paul's not going to do that. Those commands of mutual submission that Paul gives are for all of us to live out even within our marriages at times. There should be mutual submission. There should be mutuality because the reality is a husband's not better than a wife. And a wife's not better than a husband. They they are equal in God's kingdom and in his eyes. They both have the image of God on them. We have to remember that. There should never be a situation in the Christian family or the Christian world where someone says to themselves, man, it would be a lot better to be that. Right? It would be a lot better if I was a Jewish Christian. It would be a lot better if I was a Greek Christian. It would be a lot better if I was a barbarian. 
It'd be a lot better if I was a husband. It'd be a lot better if I was a wife. It would be a lot better if I was a son. It would be a lot better if I was a daughter. That, those sort of statements should not be said. That should not be the reality of the Christian family and the people of God. It should not be the reality. Now, we might say that sometimes because it seems better in certain ways. Um, and that might be God working in our hearts and we might have to, you know, repent from some of our own coveting and envy in that. But if God were to come to earth and kind of do an examination of our families and of our churches, he should be able to say there's no one person or place or type of person that it's better to be. It's not how God's kingdom works. In his kingdom, it's great to be you because God loves you just as much as he loves the person next to you. Okay, so mutuality, I really, I feel like when we come to these verses, we forget that, that Paul has taught this to all Christians, and I just don't think being a husband's a loophole out of that, personally. Okay, one last part for this little section, this first section that we're in. It's important to remember that the Christian life, the whole Christian life, is about submitting to Jesus. The whole Christian life is about submitting to Jesus. Colossians has spent this whole letter proclaiming that Jesus is Lord and above all and sovereign over everything and supreme over everything. Paul has used these big lofty words and poems and different ideas to present how much bigger God is and how he's above everything and how he's supreme over everything. And now what Paul is doing here in the household codes is he's kind of giving feet to that. He's going, okay, what does it mean for us in our Greco-Roman society to live, each of us, in our various household positions? Because whether you like it or not, if you're a mother, you're a mother, you're not a father. If you're a father, you're a father, not a mother. He's saying, what does it look like for these household uh, positions to live in submission to Jesus? What does it look like for us to do that? But this is the center of the Christian life. We are all living under submission to Jesus. We're not living under submission to the law. We're not living under submission to rules. We're all living under submission to Jesus. So when we talk about submission in the Bible, if it's divorced from talking about submission to Jesus for all, I think we're missing what submission actually is. The Christian family, the Christian home, the Christian people of God, we are all called to submit to Jesus. That is fundamental to how we live and operate. I'm going to take another drink. I'm sorry. Uh, So to kind of wrap up this like first point of love, mutuality, and submission to Jesus, I want to reference something that Pastor Aaron from Redemption Alhambra, when he was talking about Christian marriage and what it should look like, I thought this metaphor he used was really good. It's musical, though, so I don't know music very well. So I'm just going to repeat what he said, and hopefully it's right, okay? Um, But he talked about that for Christians in general in communion with one another, but with the husband and wife in particular— a lot of life for them as, as a Christian marriage is figuring out how to harmonize to a melody. So apparently in music, there's this thing called a melody. And when you're trying to sing along with something, you're trying to sing along with the melody. And if you're really good, you're trying to harmonize with the melody. And what, when you're harmonizing, it might be different than just your normal singing voice because you're trying to sing in a way that all three noises or all however many noises together sound beautiful. And what Pastor Aaron was talking about, he said, I think the melody for all Christians and for husbands and wives is Jesus. Jesus is the melody. Jesus and his love in particular. Jesus and his love is the melody. And husbands and wives are both going to be called to harmonizing, not to one another, but to Jesus. We're all called to harmonize to Jesus. That's what Christian marriage looks like. Harmonizing, living in a way that connects to Jesus and his love and his way of doing life. And because husbands and wives are different from one another, that's going to look different based on who you are. And you're going to have to change your voice in some different ways, metaphorically speaking, in order to harmonize with Christ's love. Okay? 
So that's my first point. Love, mutuality, and submission to Christ are at the center of the Christian life, okay? I already know, I can already tell you guys, you guys are going, Anthony, just tell us what these verses mean. You're not going to get a lot of this till the end, so just buckle up, all right? <laughs> all right, sorry. Uh, this is how, how I'm doing it. I'm going to say it at the end so I can run away. Um, or not. Um, Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing I want us to know about Christian marriage is Christian marriage is to make Jesus and God's word beautiful. It's to make Jesus and God's word beautiful. Here is a dynamic that Paul was speaking into as a Christian missionary, right? We know that Paul was really one of the first great missionaries, maybe not the first, but he, he had a heart to bring the gospel to everyone that was not Jewish, he actually had a heart to bring it to all the Jewish people as well. But he found himself bringing the gospel to all these Gentiles, and they were believing. And so Paul was this Christian missionary, and he wanted the gospel, he wanted Jesus to look beautiful to this pagan, Gentile, Roman world around him. He wanted it to look beautiful to them. He knew that Jesus and the gospel and the word of God did not look beautiful to those groups. To any non-Christian group, Paul wanted the gospel and Jesus to look beautiful to them. In fact, he was willing to do things in order to make it look beautiful, right? In fact, there's this kind of uh, tension that Paul speaks to and teaches that you can find in the New Testament to Christians. Like, he, there's this tension that Paul has between Jesus is Lord, and even though he's Lord and has freed us from the world's way of doing things— there's a certain way of living in our world and time, as Paul was putting it, that makes the gospel more beautiful, that makes Jesus more compelling. Right? Paul talks about living into this in certain ways in order to make Jesus and the gospel more beautiful. I think marriage is one of those things. So here's a handful of things, if you don't believe me. Paul talks about submission to the government in Romans 13 and a few other places as well. Paul didn't actually think under Christ we needed to submit to the government. Like, he didn't think that. He didn't think Caesar was Lord. He didn't think we should live as the average Roman citizen and thinking through the government, right? He thought Jesus was Lord and he wanted to submit to Jesus. And so part of that command there was in order to make the gospel look beautiful and not be reviled. He, you also find in his letters he kind of... Um, says these different things about like being wise around outsiders or living quiet lives around outsiders. He's not trying to make a rule saying like, if you're loud, you're not allowed to be part of the church or else I'd be out already. He's trying to say, listen, there is a way of living that makes the gospel and Jesus and his word more beautiful. He even does this with his, uh, with his Jewish brothers and sisters in certain ways. Here's some verses to back up what I'm saying. First Thessalonians 4 uh, 11 says this. He says, Seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. Just a, a place where Paul's going, Hey, how you live matters. There's a way of behaving properly. And he's not, I, it's not just this moral lens of behaving properly. His letters are full of that, full of the Christian virtues that we're supposed to live through uh, and into. In this Thessalonians verse, he's trying to say, hey, there is a way of living in front of the Roman world around you that makes the gospel more compelling. In Colossians 4, 5, which kind of wraps up this section, is a cap to this section, he, he kind of says this. He says this, act wisely toward outsiders, making most of the time. For Paul, the missionary, into this pagan Greco-Roman world that was far from Jesus, he thought it was important that they, in certain ways, lived into it so that the gospel was beautiful, so that Jesus was beautiful. Now, I don't think Paul would ever have uh, Christians live in a way that was contrary to the gospel or cause them to sin, but he's trying to find all the ways that they can live into the culture that's not sin, even though Christ may have freed us from those aspects of the culture. Paul is a missionary who wants the gospel to be beautiful. One of the craziest times that Paul does this, this is, this is absolutely wild to me every time I read the book of Acts, 
If you read the book of Acts, Paul is like, you know, he's sent with Barnabas to go bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And all these Gentiles are getting saved. And it's unexpected because Jesus was Jewish, because the God of the universe as they knew it was the Jewish God. But what's happening is all these non-Jewish people are getting saved and God is filling them with his spirit and making it obvious through tongues and different things that he is in these Gentiles, that he's saving these Gentiles. So then this debate comes up between the Christians about what to do with these new Gentiles because for God's people up until that point, circumcision had always been something they did. Circumcision was always part of what marked God's people. And so a lot of the Jewish Christians were going, we got to get these Gentiles circumcised or they're, they're not really Christians. And so then in Acts 15, all the Christians gather, not all, but a lot of the Christians gather together and a lot of the leaders gather together and they have this council about circumcision. And Paul just kind of goes, hey, these Gentiles are being saved by God. Deal with it. Like, I don't think we have to, like, I don't think they have to be circumcised anymore. And then the church leader James comes along and he goes, hey, you know, here's a Bible verse that kind of helps us with it. And so they decide as a council, because of Paul and Barnabas, that circumcision is not a requirement anymore because of this new work and this new covenant that God was doing through his son Jesus. And then in Acts 16, verse 2, I think, Paul goes, hey, Timothy, go get circumcised. Go read it. Read it for yourself. Acts 16, verse 2, I think, is Timothy, you got to get circumcised. He has Timothy get circumcised so that... The gospel will be beautiful to their Jewish brothers and sisters. Paul wants the gospel to be beautiful to them. They, he knew that if Timothy had not been circumcised, they would see Timothy as unclean. They wouldn't want to be around him. And so Paul said, dude, go get circumcised so that we can present the gospel, so we can present Jesus, so God's word can be beautiful. There's this dynamic that Paul has, missionary Paul has, that's important for us to see. It's important for us to see because I think that's part of what's happening in these verses. Look what theologian uh, Craig Keener says about Rome. He says this, Romans were very sensitive about Eastern cults undermining the authority of male household heads. And Christians, as less than one-tenth of one percent of the Roman Empire, were out to evangelize, not out to rock the boat on issues that would increase persecution. This is what theologian and academic Craig Keener says about Roman and how Christians were interacting with that. And we, you can kind of see that with Paul. And the reason why I think Paul, this is part of what Paul is saying when he says this submission stuff in this verse is because Titus 2.5, a verse I think we often ignore because it says stuff that also bothers us, helps us see part of why Paul is saying this. Look at what he says in Titus 2.5. He's, he's saying... Older women teach the younger women to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and in submission to their husbands, so that God's word will not be slandered. The ESV says, so that God's word will not be reviled. Are you catching what's happening here? Paul is giving us part, at least, of his reason why he's using this submission framework. He has a missionary ethic. He says it right there, so that the word of God is not reviled. He knows that if Christians live too strongly out of this uh, Roman framework, it's going to look really bad to the Romans, to the point where they will want nothing to do, do with Jesus or his word. And so Paul is saying, this is something for you to live into to help make Jesus and the gospel more beautiful. And then if you go to Ephesians 5, what you see, as Paul kind of says, again, a similar list, is he takes a lot more time to talk about all the ways that Jesus can be represented in Christian marriage in, in a Greco-Roman world. And there's just all these beautiful ways that living into that points to and shows Jesus. And so I think for Paul, he wanted our Christian marriages to make Jesus look beautiful. To make God's word look beautiful. Be beautiful. To not be reviled. So Christians, as we think through our marriages, we need to think through them in this lens of making Jesus and the word of God beautiful. That our marriages should draw people to the love of God. That our marriages should display the beauty of Jesus' sacrificial love. 
And yet, at times, our marriages are going to be very countercultural. They just are. If you look at Paul's household codes, as these are sometimes called, and you look at Aristotle's or Plato's or other philosophers in that day, you're going to find that their codes, are, their codes the, the Greek and the Roman ones, were about status and power and control. Paul's codes are about love, mutual submission, reciprocity. His codes are countercultural while also this, displaying this missionary ethic of drawing people into the beauty of Jesus and his word. So for us, what I, what I want us to leave with as we read these verses, I want, one of the things I want us to leave with is how can we make our marriages beautiful to the world around us to make Jesus and his word beautiful? How can we do that, church? Okay? All right, finally, uh, third, third thing I kind of want us to walk away with. I want us to see some of the creational goods that Paul is pointing to in marriage. I want us to see some of the creational goods that Paul is pointing to in marriage. Um, if, if you're wondering, what, what do you mean by creational goods? Creational goods are, are, are things that I would say is God's intent for creation, right? Like God intended love. For creation. God intended trees even like for creation. Like God has these different intents for creation that we can see in scripture uh, pretty clearly. Um, and, and these verses, it can be really easy for us with these verses to say there's no creational goods. There's nothing here that God intended for marriage. There's nothing here to see. Um, and, and usually what, how I hear that talked about is someone kind of goes, yeah, I, when I read that verse or that verse, I just go, well, that was cultural. That was Paul's culture. That was the cultural, the cultural ideals of the day. And I get what someone's trying to say there. Um, they're not wrong, but they're, they're missing it a bit because here's the thing about the Bible. The entire thing is cultural. The whole thing. The whole Bible is cultural. It was written to a culture, that's not us. It was written by a culture, that's not us. It was written in and to a totally different culture than us, and the whole book is cultural. But somehow, the whole book is also God's word. Somehow. This is like the mystery of, the, of God's word in the Bible over the last 2,000 years. Somehow, fully written by humans in their culture, with their personalities, and somehow fully God's word. Somehow both of those things are true. That's what Christians have held on to for the last two millennia. You'll find different Christians have, uh, in only the last few hundred years, begin to kind of debate that. And I really think that's mostly due to the Enlightenment and different things that come along with that. But all that being said, it can be easy to just go, hey, these are just cultural. These are just cultural. I think there are maybe some creational goods here for us to speak to. The debate for theologians when it comes to the, these verses is really, is missionary Paul talking only, or is creational theologian Paul talking? Because as you go throughout Paul's letters, you'll see missionary Paul talks a lot, but also creational theologian who ties creation back into a lot of his theology talks too. I, I think both Pauls are talking in this moment. I don't want to put one against the other. Part of why I think creational theologian is also talking here is because when you read the Ephesians passage that mirrors this Colossians passage, there is just a lot there with Paul trying to tie things to creation itself. There's just a lot there. I can't get over that as I read Scripture. The second thing is this. When I read theologians that are the most culturally aware and culturally sensitive to the, their time and even our time, they tend to think there are some creational goods here for us to hear as Christians. Some creational intentions for marriage here for us to hear as Christians. And so uh, I, I don't want to just say, oh, that's just cultural or that's just missionary Paul. I don't think that's the case. I think it's missionary Paul and creational theologian Paul. And so I want to do my best to talk to what some of the creational goods are here uh, in this passage, okay? I must be nervous. I'm, I'm, I'm getting a dry mouth. First, I want to talk to the husbands, the creational goods I see for the husbands. Husbands, I think you are supposed to be the love pace-setters in your marriages and in your families. 
Husbands, I think you're supposed to be the love pace setters in your marriages and in your families. And remember that, that the definition of love we talked about earlier. Meaning you're supposed to love your wife and your family in a way that displays Jesus and who God is. You, husbands, I think, are called to set the pace and the tone of serving love in your marriage and in your family. In fact, I personally think that when husbands aren't the love, the love pace setters in their homes and in their marriages, they're not living part of what God intended for creation. I think God intended for husbands to be these sort of love pace setters. That doesn't mean wives and moms can't be the love pace setters at times or aren't the love pace setters at times. They definitely are. Honestly, it feels like moms and wives are a lot better at this than men. That's maybe my culture, okay? I'm not trying to blast you men, but it just feels that way at times. It's my own baggage probably talking to you. It doesn't mean they can't. I just think in some significant way, God calls husbands, dads, to be the love pace setters in their marriages. Not in some kind of competitive way, but in a harmonizing yourself to Jesus way. And and let me flesh that out a little bit. I think as a love pace setter, what you will do for your wife as that pace setter is you will do everything you can to help her flourish. Help her flourish in her giftings and who she is. I think you'll do everything you can to do that. I think you'll do everything you can to make your marriage look like Jesus. I think you'll help your wife to look more like Jesus in non-authoritarian, domineering ways. Really the way that a good friend would. I think husbands, I think we're called. I think we're called to that. I think we're called to pace set with love in our marriages. The other kind of, I I don't know if this is a creational good, but I think the truth of this broken world that I think Paul speaks to there is when he says, don't be bitter with your wife. And actually, in some translations, it says, don't be harsh with your wife, because it's kind of one of those words that could mean both. So what do you do? Okay, let's say both. Husbands, don't be bitter or don't be harsh with your wife. Boom. I think, husbands, we need to listen to that. I think we need to listen to that. You can find in Paul's writings, a lot of times, he's talking to men about dealing with their anger. You can find this a few places in Paul's writings. He's talking to men specifically. Hey, go deal with your anger. Husbands, go deal with your anger. Your anger is destructive. Some of you are addicted to your anger. You need to repent. You need to move away from it. Deal with your anger. Single guys in here, before you get married, before you get in a serious relationship, deal with your anger. Go see a counselor. Understand your anger. Understand why you're you're angry. Be the sort of person that does not let sin crouch at the door to control you and hurt you and harm you so you harm others and hurt others, but be the sort of person that has victory in Christ in his resurrection and cross. Go deal with your anger, husbands. It's not okay just because you're a man and you have more testosterone. It's not okay. Husbands, I think we're called to be the love pace setters, to seek our wife's flourishing, to help our marriage look more like Jesus. All right, now to wives. Uh, I'll be honest, I just kinda, I'm going to do some cleanup here with that submit word. I'm just going to do cleanup, um, which it, I know that's kind of a cop-out. <laughs> but there, there's reasons why I don't really want to define even that submit word. There's a handful of reasons, and those reasons will make sense, and they'll also kind of clean up some of the damage I've seen done with this verse. I think that's what we need right now. I think that's what we need to hear is some, some cleanup around that word submit. Um, so here's some of the reasons. I'm going to give you a bunch of reasons why I don't really want to define it, and hopefully those reasons help us. Uh, that word submit there, it's in this sort of tense that Paul's almost saying it 
uh, two wives to take on for themselves and consider themselves and think through themselves. You kind of see that in the CSB as we put it. It says, wives yourselves. That's a little bit different than how other translations translate it. And it's because that word is a tricky word there. And so I think there's an aspect of what Paul is saying here for wives to kind of think through themselves. Uh, the second thing, the reason I, I don't really want to define that submit word here is uh, I'm a husband. Okay? I'm a husband. And Paul says uh, in Titus, he actually says it's the job of the older women to teach the younger women what this means and what other things mean. And I'm a husband. I'm not an older woman. So I, you might be like, you're copping out. I'm like, oh, maybe I'm being faithful to Scripture. Um, or maybe both. Okay? And so both things could be happening. And so I, I, that's part of why I don't want to – I'm, okay, I'm going to be honest – Part of that answer for me, too, is I've just watched way too many male pastors do damage with that word because of their blind spots as husbands, and I don't want to do that, okay? Um, If you do want to look at a source that I appreciate that I think uh, defines this well, if you go to the book The Meaning of Marriage, which was written by Tim and Kathy Keller, Chapter 6, Kathy Keller just writes by herself, and it's about what she thinks this verse means, and I, I really appreciate that. Uh, but I, so that's where I would lead you to, if, you, if you're like really wanting to figure out what, you, what that could mean. Um, another reason I don't want to uh, define this is, like I said earlier, I've just seen too much damage be done with this verse. I grew up in churches that didn't really care about this verse. And for 10 or more plus years, I've been associated or part of churches that really care about this verse. And some of the stuff I've seen the last 10 years has been very alarming because of how people take that verse and apply it in, I think, truly demonic ways. I've, like, I've watched this verse lead to all sorts of emotional and sexual abuse being okay because it's under this banner of submission to their husband. Church, that's wrong. That's evil. When Paul wrote that, he didn't say, here's the loophole for abusive, emotionally abusive, angry husbands. Paul was saying love is at the center of the Christian life and at the Christian marriage. That's what he's trying to say in that. And so I've just watched too much damage uh, be done with that verse. I want to avoid that. Man, if you're saying to your wives in fights or arguments, submit, stop. Just stop. That's not what Jesus or Paul would, were promoting here. Man, if, you're, if, if, if your homes, uh, you command, you have this command of submission in your home rather than uh, you yourself pace setting with love, I'm just going to suggest you have something that's more like a Roman marriage than a Christian marriage. If submitting is what's important for your guys' marriage and it's what you command as a husband, more than pace setting with love, or really, instead of pace setting with love, then I think you have a Roman marriage. Plato would love you. Aristotle would love you. Paul would, I think, have a problem with you. So, to be clear, submission, Christian submission, is in no way subjugation. Our lens for understanding what it means as a husband to lead or whatever that is, is when Jesus says, the least among you is the greatest among you, the one that serves everyone. It's Jesus washing feet. That's what husbands are called to. Not subjugation. Not causing our wives to subjugate or be subjugated. And so I do want to say this to wives in the room. If you need help, I'd love to help you. I know that that's even scary. Like maybe I'm not, maybe I won't be able to help you. Maybe you've been ignored by other pastors. Maybe you think from some of the things I've said I ignore you. I'd love to connect you to a woman who is a Christian counselor, who has a lot of expertise in this, and has done an amazing job helping women in marriages that are emotionally destructive like this please reach out to me or someone in the church. We can get you connected to that person. Um, Part of why I don't want to submit as well is I think we just have like a lot of silly rules about submission. We just have a lot of silly rules that we made up for it. And we just, we ignore other places of Paul's writings. Like in 1 Corinthians 7, he talks about women having authority over their husband's body and husbands having authority over the, the, the woman's body. 
And, he, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he starts say, with the woman saying that she has authority over his body. Well, which is it? Like, if you're going to pick the verses of what submit, what, which is it? Why does she have authority here in the bedroom but not outside? What's going on there? And I think what's going on there is Paul is speaking into this mutual submission that we're all called to. Mutual submission that we're all called to. And so I, don't, I just don't want to define and be like, this is, this is submission and this and this and this and this. Because I don't know if I have the wisdom yet to give you clear definitions. And so to help clear up some things, women, you're allowed to disagree with your husband. You're allowed to. I, like, it's sad, like, I have to say that. <laughs> uh, he can defer to your leadership many times. He can defer to your leadership. Submission is not giving the husband whatever he wants whenever he wants. Right? Again, I've seen this just be demonically used in regards to sex. Demonically. Man, sex is not a need. It's a strong desire. It's not a need. Paul was single. Jesus was single. Think about that. It's not a need. So uh, the, the, kind of one of the last reasons I don't want to define the submission verses, I've just watched this verse be used in a way that's held so many women back from using their gifts in their families and in the church and held back from flourishing the way that I think God would have them flourish. And so I just want to be careful with that. I want to be overly careful with that. You know, that might make you mad and... That's okay. So friends, I, I don't want us to take these verses and create huge oppressive rules or burdens for ourselves off of these verses. I want us to see what's really being said. I want us to see what's really happening. I think what we are called to as husbands and wives is to love each other. To love each other so deeply and beautifully that, that, that the center of our marriage is love. That we love each other so well that our marriages point to the character of Jesus and look like Jesus and draw people into knowing who Jesus is and what his word is and what creation's like. I think that because God created men and women mysteriously different in certain ways, I think there's different ways that we may harmonize at moments to harmonize with Christ and his love. And I think husbands were called to that pace-setting love. So church, may our marriages be full of Jesus and full of Jesus' love. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. I'm sorry I preached long. God, uh, we need you. God, help us. God, correct whatever I said wrongly. With verses like this, it's always tough. It's always hard to know what needs to be said or what should be said or what should be taught. And so, God, teach us through your word what you want to teach us. Lord, let us be a people that have Christ-centered love, that we really embody this sort of love that you talk about throughout the New Testament, and we don't make our marriages a place where all of a sudden that love does not exist. God, help us in all the ways we need help. Help the marriages in our church, God. Help us to repent. God, repair the marriages, where they need to be repaired so that we could understand who you are, so the world could see who you are. God, we love you and we need you. Amen.